Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here this morning as we continue with what I call the greatest hour of glory upon the earth, Sunday school. I was actually questioned about that the other day in the staff meeting. They don't agree, but jealousy always works that way. (laughs) So thank you for being here with us this morning. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we begin our looking at Ephesians over the next several weeks. I think we'll be in Ephesians outlining it for about five or six weeks or so. I can't remember the exact number of weeks, but somewhere around there. This morning we'll be in chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Father, what an enormous task to teach that which is eternal, to teach that which is your heart, to teach that which is a mystery being unfolded yet still mostly a mystery. And Father, we know that with anything and everything in your word, it cannot be done except by revelation and ministry and anointing and gifting and communication, receiving by the Holy Spirit. So, Father, this morning we ask not that the presentation be polished, not that it be in a man way beautifully presented, but, Father, by your Spirit, Father, would you cause this word and any word that we would teach or preach to be communicated to our hearts, our minds, Father, so that we will have that dual work of the Spirit, understanding in our minds and feeling and receiving and experiencing in our hearts so that this Word becomes a living relationship with you. So, Father, we desire more than anything else that this is not just a compilation of information, but that as we hear what is in your Word, you will give it to us. You will cause us to eat it, and like natural food, it will become part of our being. Father, fill us with your love. Father, fill us with delight in you, a passion for you, an affection for you that mirrors that which you have for us. All of this because of your purpose in Christ, by the power of your Spirit. We ask, we receive, because you're promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, once again, thank you for being here. If you have opened your Bibles, you see that chapter 1, verses 1 to 14 in Ephesians. This morning, we begin with chapter 1, and in chapter 1, as I gave you a general outline last week, chapter 1 deals with God's eternal plan. And in chapter 1, Paul introduces this great eternal plan of God. Now, one of the reasons we are doing what we're doing, rather than spending two years, for instance, in just these verses, which I'm sure we could, but we're going through in a very fast way over the next several weeks in this particular letter. Our purpose is not to cover every detail because we couldn't do that anyway, but at least to make an attempt. Our purpose is to give an overview so you will have a flavor and a general understanding of what this letter is about and its purpose and its import and its function in order to facilitate your study, your reading, when you do your personal devotions. And so what I would encourage you to do is to take the notes that you have and keep them together with other notes as we outline various books of the Bible. And as the Holy Spirit would lead you to be reading Ephesians or reading Hebrews, which we did a while back, or any of the letters or books of the Bible, that you would go ahead and get the notes and look at the notes and look at your study Bible. Remember what we said last week and kind of get a background feel for what is happening and an overview and then start reading and let the Holy Spirit minister to you in a much better way of understanding and flow. 
So this morning, let's look at verses 1 to 2 that deal with the author, the recipients, and the greetings. Paul, an apostle of Jesus or Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly and perfunctorily without giving a whole lot of information, filling in some things that I think I would like to say about this. First of all, very important, who wrote the letter? Now, we know that every letter and every book of the Bible is authored by God. Everybody understands that. For all Scripture is God-breathed. It is the outbreath of God by the Spirit through the person who is writing. So we know that. So when we say, who is the author? We obviously understand it's the Holy Spirit, but we're talking about who is the human author. So he identifies himself immediately. This is Paul. Now, the Ephesians, remember, would know Paul because in Acts chapter 19, you remember that Paul was in Ephesus for a little over two years. They know who this man is when they get the letter. It's from Paul. And you can just imagine, this man was well-loved. He ministered greatly and strongly in this city. And when they get a letter from him, you can imagine how it would have been. It's not like modern churches. If we have time, we'll come to church. And if we're not doing anything else, and if I'm not too tired, and if it's not too early, I may come to Bible study. Well, thankfully, you don't feel that way. But they get a letter from Paul. And I can just get a sense that when this information gets out into the community, the Christian community, the first thing is what? Where and when is the letter going to be read to us? Okay, we're going to read the letter at Joe's house next Tuesday at 7 o'clock. I doubt, except for critical reasons, that most of those believers needed to be cajoled and encouraged to come in. I think they did what Frank and I experienced in Russia. What did we experience in Russia? When the Word of God went out, what happened? These people were there. They were... I mean, they wanted the word. And here we're in Russia, three, four hours in the meeting at night. And they closed down the building at 10 o'clock because in those days the Russian government told you when you were out of church. They told you when church was over. So you didn't have to worry about the preacher going too long. And here it is about 10 o'clock at night. The doors are shut. Everybody leaves. We've been there, what, three or four hours, whatever it is, in church. And we're walking home. It's not like here. You don't catch a streetcar or take your car. You walk. Now, they've been there three hours or so. And what is one of the things that they desire? As we're walking, you know what they ask? Teach us something. This is how the church felt about Paul's letter. Oh, that we would, as a modern Christian community, feel this zeal and passion and need to hear the Word of God. Remember that, Frank? Teach us something. And we just say, well, we've been in church for three hours. What's the matter with it? Give me a rest. And so they forced me to speak. They forced me to speak. I didn't want to. But as you know, I was made to and I had to do it. Thank you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Why should anybody listen to this man? Because he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostolos means a personal messenger. He is a personal messenger of Christ who has been commissioned, appointed, anointed, gifted, empowered, and sent by the will of God to communicate God's plan. This is who this man is. He's not just another Joe. This is God's personal emissary with God's personal word of power for those who are the recipients of this word. And they're going to receive it greedily and eat it greedily as hungry people would jump on a meal given to them. To whom is the letter written? It's written to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The saints, those who had been saved by faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's the word... Sanctus, which comes from the Greek, the Latin word sanctus, which comes from the Greek word hagios, which means something or person that is set aside for specific and personal use by someone. 
Something that was holy or sanctified in its original meaning meant that you put this aside for your own personal use. And when it comes to God's people, we are those whom God has collected out of the world and has been brought into his family and are his now for his own personal use. So it doesn't mean just a great a set of people who did marvelous things and did a few miracles and now these are the saints. Every born again man and woman and young person in Christ, everyone who has the Holy Spirit living in him or her is, by, in God's view, a saint. We are those who have been brought into the kingdom and are God's personal people, saints. So it's not just a special group over here. Everyone in this room, if everyone in this room is saved, everyone in this room is a saint, every one of us. And guess what? We're always going to be saints now we may be saints that sin but we're still saints nevertheless why because a saint is a forgiven person a saint is an adopted child into the family of god a saint has eternal life a saint has fellowship with god a saint will live in eternity in the new heaven and the new earth this is who we are so when we read these words, let's not go too quickly, saints who are, and they move along, because I want to get to the good things. Every word here, every phrase is, quote, a good thing. So when you read the word, let me encourage you again, don't fly through the word of God. Take your time and allow the Holy Spirit to cause each word and each phrase and each sentence and each circumstance to permeate your soul, to permeate you. You've heard me say this before, and I think it's a great lack in the church. All of us, when we read, are trying to acquire a mental ascent and understanding of what we read. Isn't that right? You're trying to understand it with your mind, and we should. But where we're failing, or at least weak, maybe because of excess, we don't want to not do something because of someone else's excess, rather. We need to feel the Word of God. This morning, as we go through these verses, I ask you to feel what God is saying. To feel it. To let the love, the power, the work of our great God and Father permeate your heart, your soul to feel this. What is the location? It's Ephesus. This is that large and significant Roman city in Asia Minor. It is a place where the temple of Diana, one of the wonders of the Roman world were, was, and you remember there was a great riot, and if you want to know about that great riot, you know, Diana of the Ephesians and so on, and they're chanting and chanting. You need to go to Acts chapter 19, and you'll see what was going on there. So Ephesus is a major city. It's like writing to the saints who are in New York City. This is a major place in the Roman world. And then Paul, after introducing himself, after addressing the people and the location, he gives the greetings, a typical Pauline greeting. He says, grace to you. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Now, we need to be careful Grace is not free. We cannot say grace is free and leave it like that because it brings in too, many, too much confusion. Grace is both free and grace is very costly. It is free of our ability to earn it. Do we understand the freedom part of grace? It is free from anything that I can do to earn it. But it is the most costly commodity and activity of God. It cost him the life of his own son, and it is costly to our old humanity because it crucifies us in Christ. So it's costly to God, and it's costly to my sin. Aren't you glad of that? So grace is free, but it's also costly. So let's be careful when we say, well, grace is free. Grace is free. We need to be very careful when we use these kinds of terms to make sure that we are saying it's free or it's costly within the correct context of those meanings. 
Because otherwise we will cheapen the understanding of what grace really is. It is free of my merit. But it is the most costly commodity to God and it is the most costly commodity to my old sinful self as constituted in Adam. He says peace. One of the initial effects of God's grace is peace. Peace with God. The war is over. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The war that we were engaged in, even if we didn't understand it or realize it that much, the warfare is over. God is no longer considering us as enemies, as he tells us in chapter 5 of Romans. While we were enemies, we're now children. The peace has come. There's a peace treaty in the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace has been declared by God over us. And where is all this from? It's from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of all unmerited favor is God. He is the author of all unmerited favor. He's the author of all peace. He's the author of all joy. He's the author of all love. He's the author of all patience. He's the author of all goodness, etc., etc., etc. He himself is the author. Why? Because this is who God is in himself. And so why is peace ours from God? Because God is preeminently and eternally at peace within himself about himself. Why is joy ours in Christ? Because God is filled with joy in himself, about himself. You see, these are attributes of God that he is in himself, about himself. Why is love so significant? Because God is loving in himself, about himself. There is love within the community of the three persons of God among these three persons, giving and receiving, reciprocating and Whatever, love is flowing back and forth, if you would. So that's why it's so important for us to be experiencing these things. They're not things in and of themselves. They are the literal way God is in himself about himself. So now that Paul has introduced himself, he introduces the subject of the letter. Verses 3 to 14. The subject of the letter, God's plan is revealed. God's plan is revealed. Let's read these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, in the Greek, that's one sentence. It is one sentence. Paul gets going, the Holy Spirit fills this man, and he's moving like a freight train. I can just imagine him either pacing back and forth or saying this as his little secretary is trying to write all this down. And in him, whatever. 
Because all of a sudden, out of Paul flows this most magnificent sentence, in my mind, in the entire Bible. It's incredible. So what do we have in this sentence? What we're going to do is just, again, give a very brief highlight, because we could spend months in this. These verses that I just read are the very foundation and reason for everything else in the letter. Everything else in the letter is as a result of and built upon and is a, an outworking explanation of these verses. So these 12 verses, 3 to 14, are the foundational verses of this particular letter. So in these verses, Paul highlights when, why, and how of God's plan for the church. As we go through them, let me ask you one more time. Don't just do it in an intellectual thing. Let us feel what God has done. And let us feel it from this perspective. <clears throat> Who we are in the natural. Undeserving, rebellious, undesiring, incapable. We absolutely deserve nothing. And when we read these verses... And when we understand experientially more and more as a result of our getting the knowledge of the word, as that knowledge permeates our experience and informs our experience and cultivates our experience, knowledge, experience together, it becomes the most audacious, it becomes the most scandalous, it becomes, if you would, to the natural mind, the most ridiculous, the most foolhardy, the most mysterious, whatever adjective you want, of anything that anyone has ever said or heard. There's not another religion in the world that even begins to approach this fact. That the creator, the holy, just God of glory, in kindness creates man and sets before him a banquet. And man repudiates that by rejecting God's authority and word and becomes God's enemy and works against in his heart and his soul against God himself. And rather than wiping it out, as any other religion would tell you, or forcing man to work his way back, crawling on glass, climbing ladders, beating himself, trying to be as moral as he can, whatever. God, through the most amazing patience, think about your life. Think about you today. Think about yesterday. The most amazing patience, the most amazing forbearance. We can't even put up with an attitude one time. Forbearance. The most amazing kindness. The most amazing gentleness. The most amazing, and we could go on and on, takes on our sin as a man so that we could take on his righteousness as God and joins us to himself. This is scandalous. It's crazy. It makes no sense. This is the reason why, among several others, I know it's true because the mind of man could never conceive of such a ridiculous religion. Are you with me this morning? I may have to go over a few minutes. Is that all right with everyone? So if we get out of here at 1230, tell Keith you gave me permission. <laughs> First of all, the church has been blessed in Christ. Paul begins by praising God. 
He's going to tell them the greatest news of all. But he doesn't say, hey, let me tell you what Jesus has done. And that's not wrong. But Paul begins this way. Let me first, I got to praise God because what I'm going to tell you is astounding. I just got to praise God first. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies or heavenly places. He said, I can't even speak about this until I burst forth with this praise, this eulogy, this bragging about God. We should be bursting with praise. Now, my wife would tell you, I do a beautiful job with this. I never complain. I'm never grumpy. She's quiet over there, which is good. The word blessed means to eulogize. It means to brag upon, to praise, to acknowledge the worth of. Why is Paul praising God? He's praising God for what God has done. Please let's stop this. I hear it occasionally. I do not worship God for what he's done, but for who he is. Honey child, you wouldn't know him unless you know what he does. The only way we get to know him is by what he has done. Therefore, I praise him for what he has done because it reveals to me who he is. And therefore, I praise him for who he is because of what he has done. And what he has done because of who he is. Because the two are inseparable. I don't stay on one side more than the others continually. It may be a season where I remain on one side more. And then then another season where I go to the other side. But my life needs to be a balance of both. So don't say anymore, we don't praise God for what he's done. We don't praise God because every command, if you look at the Bible, of God to his people, everyone has a blessing, a reason for obeying. When you go to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 through 12, every Beatitude says, here's a blessing and here's what you get for it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because you will see God. Blessed are you that mourn. Why? Because you will be comforted, etc., etc. I praise God for what he's done in my life. Because what he's done in my life has caused me to know him. I would not know him had he not done anything in my life. So let's get this balanced out right. Both together are right as long as we don't stand on one side to the exclusion or the diminution of the other side. And after Paul praises God, in the next 11 verses, he enumerates the particulars of what these blessings are. What these blessings? What are these blessings? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What blessings? I don't know any about these blessings. Tell me about these blessings. And so, let's go through the blessings. Verses 4 to 12, God's work for us. And 13 to 14, God's work in us. First of all, God's work for us. What are these blessings? Believers have been chosen in Christ. Verse 4. He chose us in him. You you have to watch these pronouns. You know, I, I would like to have seen these Uh, translators of the Bible put it as he chose us in him and put parenthesis Christ after the word him so we can kind of keep our flow better in him who you know you have to kind of stay tuned to what pronouns refer to what nouns remember a pronoun always has a noun as its antecedent correct English teacher so when we use a pronoun there's always a noun that this pronoun refers to And so when you travel through this, it might be good if you take your Bible and write the word Jesus or Christ over the words that pertain to him and write the word God the Father or God over the pronouns that refer to him. I think it would help you. He, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, him could be God or Christ, but it's probably God the Father. So first of all, we've been chosen Does this ring your bell? I'm going to be late today. Does this ring your bell? (laughs) This should ring your bell. We've been chosen. There's not a person in this room 
that God could not have justly walked right past you, Ryan, and ignored you and left you going to hell. You see, Laura, God could have easily had ignored you. Think about it. Think. God could have ignored me. You see, some theology says God chose me because I first had faith in him. Therefore, he had to choose me. That's not the case. God chose us because he chose us. And Francis, he could have easily have ignored you, brother. And you would have no hope in this world. Right? This should, change, this should shake your cage. He could have ignored me. Why did he choose me? Oh, God, for the grace that you chose me. Because had you not chosen me, I would be under the eternal sentence of death and condemnation. He chose me. Feel the word. Are you with me today? Feel the word. Think about this this week. He chose me. Secondly, we have been predestined. May I not read each of these verses for you? We've been predestined. What is predestination? John Piper has it this way. Predestination is God's means of of, of achieving his elective purpose. Predestination is God's means, his activity of putting into reality his choosing, his purpose. What does predestination mean? God chose you. Predestination is the way he caused that choosing of you to become effective in our lives when we were saved. It's the means which God uses to bring me to Christ. Number four, we have been redeemed. You see, it is explaining we're chosen. God's method is to predestine us. What does predestined do? It causes us to be redeemed. We have been purchased out of the sin pits of the world. Jesus paid the price that was due to God, not to Satan. That's a malicious teaching that Jesus had to pay Satan for us. That is a malicious, lying teaching. If you hear that kind of teaching, turn off that person because he is not teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and never listen to that person again. Oh, that's strong, brother. Okay. When they teach certain fundamental things like that that are wrong, I want nothing to do with them. And I think you're better off leaving them alone. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased out of sin and death by Christ. Because you see, it is God who has been offended. And Jesus has paid the price for God's honor, for the vindication of God's name. It has nothing to do with Satan's ability or Satan's <clears throat> authority in our lives as far as purchase is concerned. We have an inheritance. An inheritance. Now we are those who will inherit. May I say it this way? Everything that is in and of Christ. This should rattle you. Because we are chosen, because God worked it through predestination, predestined, because Jesus purchased us, we have an inheritance. And you'll see next week or next in a few moments about the Holy Spirit. What have we inherited? We've inherited Christ himself and everything that Christ has been given by God the Father. Except for the nature of God. We don't get the nature of God. The next time you think you don't have something, you've been left out, You've been cheated. You've been overlooked. May I 
ask you to look at this verse that I just read. We have an inheritance. There's nothing God has done in Christ for us that we don't have because we are the redeemed of the Lord Jesus. We have an inheritance in Christ. Then verses 13 and 14, after having given us the work of God for us, now the work of God comes to us and is applied to us. So this is the work of God in us. Believers have been sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Been sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's just a sentence that kind of encapsulates the, the, the central meaning of verses 13 and 14. We've been sealed. What does that mean? You remember in the old days they had the king wrote something on a scroll. Actually, he didn't write anything. I suppose his secretary did. And the, the king's declaration is on this big old scroll. They wrap it up or fold it up or whatever. And what would they do on the outside of it? They put that gobbledygook stuff on it, and the king's ring, the signet ring, the stamp would go on that, and it would seal it. It would seal the contents, and it would also show that these, the contents of this are from the king. It has the king's seal on it or whoever's seal. It's the authority. We have the Holy Spirit as God's authoritative guarantee that we have everything in Christ. The Bible calls him, he is the down payment, the Arabon. It is, again, the picture of the tithe. Oh, here we go again, money. It's a picture of the tithe. The Holy Spirit is God's tithe, his down payment to us until we come into the fullness of the inheritance. You may be inheriting something from your mom and them, and it's yours today positionally. But you don't get it until you come into the fullness of the inheritance and then you can have it all. But you have aspects of the good of that inheritance today as you relate, hopefully, to your parents or to one another in a nice way. But on that day in heaven, we're going to have what the Holy Spirit has been given, giving to us as a down payment and in tastes and in kind of like glimpses of God's work we're going to get it in fullness on that day. The inheritance. Why are we inheriting? Because God has promised Jesus in Psalm chapter 2, that, look, I will give you the what? The nations as your inheritance in your obedience. There's too much to talk about. Let me get away from that. I'll go down another path. Now, I think there are several significant issues to notice about these verses. So let me go through several significant issues. First of all, these verses are Trinitarian. What do you mean by that? These verses disclose the Trinitarian nature of God. They show us that God is one in being, but three in persons. Each person of the Trinity is shown to have a personal and particular function in the implementation of God's eternal plan, while all three are involved in all of the plan. May I make sure that we see this? God has a purpose. Jesus carries out the purpose, and the Holy Spirit implements the purpose. But God's purpose is not his apart from Jesus carrying it out from the part from the Holy Spirit's implementation. And when Jesus is carrying out the purpose, God the Father is not sitting on a hill somewhere and the Holy Spirit is kind of chining away, having nothing to do. But all three persons of the Trinity, each having a particular role and particular aspect of the plan to be carried out, all three, however, are involved in every aspect of this plan. So when Jesus is incarnate in a fleshly body, he's continually relating to and talking about the Father's will, and he's being empowered by the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes, he is the Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of Christ, sent by the Father and sent by the Son to bring to us the reality of the Father and the Son in us by the Spirit. So again, it's wrong for us to say, I'm a Holy Spirit man. I'm a Jesus man. I'm a Father man. We are people of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all wrapped up together. It's a Trinitarian understanding. 
In verses 3 to 6, you see the father's participation. In verses 7 to 12, you see the son's participation. In verses 13 to 14, you see the Holy Spirit's participation. And when you look at those verses, that's what you see. The father, 3 to 6. The son, 7 to 12. The Holy Spirit, 13 to 14. Those are the three persons of the Spirit. I mean, of the, uh, of the work of God. The supreme purpose of God's plan is the display and praise of his glorious grace. Why is God doing this? Look at verses 6, 12, and 14. To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. It's too much to go into this morning. But God would be wrong not to display the glory of his rightness, of his holiness, of his perfection of who he is. He's not a selfish God. Why does he create us? Not because he needs to, because there's a community there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are in absolute reveling, joyful, peaceful, sublime communication and, you know, just loving the fact that that's God forever. So he's not lonely. But he's a God who desires passionately to share himself. And he's going to create a people in whom and through whom he will share his glory, the praise of his glorious grace, of all who he is and all that he's done. This is why we're saved. So we as vessels could be vessels of the glory and praise of God. This is why sin is so dastardly. This is why our passion is never to sin but to seek, to elevate the glory of God in our lives. Secondly, not only are these verses Trinitarian, God initiates and the church receives. Did you notice who's doing what and who is receiving what? Now, there is, there is a bunch of active and passive voices in here. Without going into grammar, remember the active, the subject does the action. John hit the ball. Passive, the subject is acted upon. The ball was hit. You remember how that works. Active and passive. You should have listened to that course, and you would have been better off today. We told you to listen to your English teacher, but you did not. <laughs> active and passive voices. The pronouns in these verses clearly show that the grace of salvation originates with God. In verse 3, who? Who? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who? Who, who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, God, verses 5, 6, five, sorry, 4, 5, 6, and 8. You can look them up. God initiates, and the church is the receptor of this. God's plan, number three, is the revelation of his grace in the church. There is a place where God's grace is displayed, specifically and in its brilliance. You can look at the wonders. What does it say? The heavens and the earth do what? Declare what? The glory of God. And that's right. But there is not a star. There's not a flower. There's not a waterfall. There's not a sunset that can begin to display the glory of God's grace as it is displayed in the church. Why? Because when I see a sunset... All I know is that there is a great creator. Remember Romans chapter 1, 19? You know, the knowledge of God is evident to them because of everything around them. But I don't know anything about the patience of God and the forbearance of God and the kindness of God and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Where do I get all that grace the creative grace I can see. But where do I get that personal, functional, heart grace of God? You know where you see the grace of God the most astoundingly? The most incredible, the most audacious revelation of the grace of God? You know where you see it? You know where you experience the most preposterous revelation of all? The great depth and the height and the width and the breadth of God's grace. Do you know want to, you want, you know want to, do you want to see it this morning? Look at the person next to you. Look at the person next to you. Just look around. My God, you're a revelation of the grace of God? Oh my goodness. You the revelation of the grace of God? 
You? Yes! You want to find the grace of God? You want to experience the grace? You want to understand and feel who this God is? It's in the church. It's a guy and the girl next to you. It's in every saved person. Look around the room and you will see a multitude of the complexity and the beauty and the glory of God himself in visible form in us. We don't think like that, do we? We're always looking elsewhere. And we're told, and this is not correct, look to the cross. Well, yes, but I don't understand the cross and I don't experience the cross and what it all means until I start looking in the mirror and until I start looking at you people. Then I understand what the cross is all about. Do we get this? So, Todd, look at Amanda and revel in what Christ did at the cross in his uh, resurrection. Jared, look at Tommy and see the depth of the mercy of God to save a scoundrel such as that man. Do you understand this? So when the church said, look at the cross, I like that and I don't like that. I would rather say, look at the believers understanding and receiving what God says and you will begin to understand more of what happened at the cross. Now, don't go out of here saying, Peter said we shouldn't look at the cross and consider Jesus' death. Let me continue. I'm slowing down here. God's plan originates, well, four, he uses, Paul uses in number three, the revelation of grace. Four pronouns to show the church is a place of the display of God's grace. Look, us, look at all those verses. We are the location of God's grace. We, look at the verses, our and you. God's plan originates in Christ. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In Christ. God's plan, number five, is carried out in Christ. God's eternal purpose is the display of his glory in Christ. When Jesus became a man, he took on a real human but sinless body. Why? So that in his death and resurrection, we could be saved and adopted by God because we were in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. In Christ, God has re- was reconciling the world unto himself. In Christ. You see, the following verses, we see that everything God does for us and in us has been given to us by him and received by us on the basis of one thing only. We are recipients of the grace of God for one reason only, because of our union with or in Christ. Look at those words, in and through in the verses that I have for you there. And go home and look at these things. Our union in Christ. Our union, our location in Christ. Why? Why is this important? Because the union of the church in Christ mirrors the union of the three persons of the Trinity. God is declaring who he is and how he is in us. That's why unity in the church is so significantly fundamental. That's why love is so significantly fundamental. That's why sin is so dastardly destructive. Because it has to do with who God is and how God is. In Christ, our union in Oh, what a subject this is. We'll have to do a long teaching one day on it. The Father proposed to put us in the... When did, when did we get into Christ? Let me just talk about this without dealing with the issue right here, and I'll have to go through a question. We were in Christ before the foundation of the world. Did you look at verse 4? Did you look at verse 4? When, when did he choose us in Christ? What does it say? Before the foundation of the world. Before we were created, we were in Christ. In God's purpose, God had a plan. Now, he didn't come up with this plan at a particular time because we're talking about an eternal God who's never had an original thought. God's thoughts have always been the same, and they've always been perfect, and they don't need to change 
And he doesn't need to come up with any other thoughts. So God's purpose has always been an eternal purpose. Now, in our minds, well, how could that be? He had started it sometime or another. We don't get it. It's too difficult, so don't worry about it. We were in God's heart and mind and purpose before we were created. He had each one of us personally in mind when he created the earth. He had each one of us purposely in mind when Adam sinned. And all those thousands of years coming to the cross. And when Jesus was born, we were in Christ, Galatians 2.20. We were in Christ. When Jesus lived his life according to the will of God sinlessly, God saw that we were living a sinless or a perfect or an obedient life. But in Christ, you see, the basis of our righteousness is not what we have done. It's what has been done for us and what we did if you would quote we did if you would in Christ God when we're saved sees us as having lived in Christ perfectly now we're just outworking it if you would we're kind of getting the reality of it in our everyday life in Christ we have inherited everything where in Christ why are you saved today because for some inexplicable reason in the love of God and the eternal plan of God and the wisdom and mercy of God, we were put into Christ. Had we not been in Christ originally, we would never be in Christ. So this means that we were in Christ during his earthly ministry. We were in Christ when he died. We were in Christ when he buried, when they buried him. He, we were in Christ in the resurrection, and we were in Christ when he was exalted. You can see some of the references there. And we are going to be in Christ when we rise from the dead. And the glorious body that he has, you see that in Philippians 2, uh, I think it's 3, 20 and 21, somewhere around there. We are going to inherit a glorious body that Jesus, the same kind of body that Jesus has. You remember the body that Jesus had? When John, the revelator, John, the beloved disciple, sees Jesus in Revelation, what does he do? He falls to the ground as a dead man because in the earthly, this magnificent, magnificent man who transcends the magnificence and the beauty of all the angels, he's much greater in his exaltation than any angel. And that's the kind of body that we will have. One author said if we were to be able to see an exalted human being in the resurrection after everything is concluded we would literally fall down to our knees and want to worship this person why because we are taking on the same exalted body of Christ himself this is incredible this is incredible so much more to say I love doing this but I hate doing it and Frank is jealous, but that's his plight. <laughs> Next week, verses 15 to 22, I ask you to do this. This week, read this prayer and see the connection between what Paul prays and what we've just learned this morning in verses 3 to 14. See you next week.